Welcome to this podcast from Jams. In this episode, we're going to talk about the role ADR plays in cybersecurity coverage disputes. We have four guests, including two Jams neutrals, Andrew Nadolna, who spent 17 years in claims leadership positions at AIG, including as global head of casualty claims, and Bruce Friedman, a former trial lawyer of 37 years with significant experience in insurance law. We also have two lawyers in private practice, Joe D'Ambrosio of Letheria Law, who represents insurers in privacy claims, including those involving data security and privacy breaches. And finally, Kristen Jackson of Latham & Watkins, who represents policyholders on the full spectrum of insurance cases, including those involving cyber liability. So thank you all for joining us. Joan, l- let me start with you. As counsel to insurers for many years, how would you characterize the state of cybersecurity coverage disputes now? What does the landscape look like compared to maybe 10 years ago? Thanks, and and thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. I I guess I'd start by saying 10 years ago is an absolute lifetime in the cyber world, let alone the cyber insurance world. So, uh, you know, kind of taking it back, I mean, over the last decade, cyber insurance policies have developed and changed significantly, starting mostly as add-on coverages to E&O policies and other types of policies before morphing into standalone products, offering an increasingly wide range of coverages and opportunities for risk transfer for companies buying the insurance, including first-party coverage for incident response and containment, review of notification obligations, notifications to individuals, usually consumers or patients if healthcare, and defense of third-party claims, including regulatory investigations and litigation. Mm. Many policies now offer expanded first-party business interruption, business income coverage, reputational coverage, etc. Mm. So in terms of the disputes arising from these policies, most coverage disputes continue to be resolved between insurers and policyholders, increasingly in our experience with the assistance of ADR, but outside of court, meaning Mm. there is still very little published case law. There are a lot of reasons for this method of addressing these disputes, including the rapidly changing coverage forms Mm. and, and the high level of partnership for the most part between insurers and policyholders in this evolving space. We might talk today about some of the case law that's out there, like a case involving travelers and international control services or ICS, which addressed alleged misrepresentations in the cyber application process, um, but was uh, resolved shortly after filing and and involved rescission of the policy. And the Merck coverage case, which gets lots of attention, including Mm. over the past week at the appellate level, arising from the 2017 NotPetya incident, mm-hmm. but of course didn't even involve cyber policy. Those are property insurers litigating mm-hmm. the war exclusion. So overall, we're at a fairly initial stage for cyber coverage disputes. There mm-hmm. are maturing coverages though, drastically differing policy forms and lots of movement with policyholders and brokers and insurers within the market. And all of that, you know, I think um, you know, leads to sort of a ripe environment for uh, addressing some of the disputes that are that are now rising to the top. Mm. So you mentioned we ha- were sort of in a nascent period for for disputes. Certainly, you know, on the on the court side, more more private disputes. Has how would you say the market, you know, for insurance has responded? The market for coverage. Well, I work with lots of very smart insurers who spend a lot of time trying to adapt and pivot to these new risks. I mean, this is the big challenge here, right? Is 
you know, what, what cyber risks look like today are, is completely different to what it looked like 10 years ago when we were worried about data and people losing data. And now we're worried about bad guys and threat actors that continue to pivot with new tactics and things that we never even thought of. So I, I think the insurance market has been incredibly adept at trying to figure out how to underwrite to these moving targets and not shy away from them for the most part, um, you know, with literally no usable actuarial data or, you know, looking in the past doesn't predict the future. So I think it's pretty exciting to see the energy that's going into trying to underwrite to these risks. But, you know, it obviously presents immense challenges because the minute you write a policy, there's likely to be something that will happen that you hadn't thought of. Right. Hey, Kirsten, what's your view from the policyholder side? Uh, certainly. Um, I agree with Joan. I, I would say the landscape has certainly changed. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that cyber crimes have been on the rise. Um, I read a pretty interesting statistic. And one was that in 2015, cybercrime cost the world economy about $3 trillion. Wow. And it's predicted that by 2025, cybercrime will cost the world economy around $10.5 trillion. Just to put that in a little bit of perspective, that means that, in a sense, cybercrimes will have the world's third largest GDP behind the U.S. and China. You know, it's it's not really a secret why we're seeing more of this, you know, as society becomes more digital, in part uh, due to behavioral changes following the pandemic. There's also increased political instability, including the war in Ukraine. So it's not surprising that we're seeing uh, more of this. But I would also note that there's probably been a resurgence recently of third-party security and privacy liability claims arising from violations of privacy acts in various states, Mm. including in Illinois, California, Texas, and New York. And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, all four of us, I believe, met working on a privacy cyber coverage case in the cottage health matter about Mm. 10 years ago. So we're seeing a little bit of those issues returning. Are there any other sort of specific legal questions that you see as the most contested in this area? Certainly. As Joan noted, I'm seeing a lot of issues involving the application of war exclusions to coverage for cyber attacks. Uh, So when cyber attacks occur, it can sometimes be difficult, if not completely impossible, to identify the attacker and whether they're a nation state or if they're backed by a nation state. But that information can be a deciding factor in whether the victim business is covered under its cyber insurance policy for the losses it suffers from a cyber attack. And the devil really is in the details of the language used in a policy's war exclusion. Um, As Joan mentioned, uh, just earlier this week, uh, a New Jersey appeals panel held that a war exclusion did not apply uh, to bar coverage for a 2017 malware attack on Merck. And a lot of that had to do with Joan is correct, the fact that it's a property policy, not a cyber policy, but also because the exclusion in that case didn't specify cyber attacks. Hmm. So one thing that policyholders are going to want to look at when they're in the process of you know, comparing and shopping around coverages is they're really going to want to pay close attention to the language of exclusions. And you know they can vary, and uh, that can make all the difference. Hmm. Andrew, as Joan said, a lot of these disputes uh, don't make their way to court necessarily. They, they make their way to uh, folks like you. What kind of disputes are you seeing these days? So I see all kinds of disputes in the cyberspace. 
I, but I, I want to connect up with what Joan said about the market 10 years ago, because I've been mediating about seven years. One of the first disputes I ever got was a cyber dispute. It involved a policy that I would just say was not well-written, was a little bit hazy on what it was trying to do. There was a dispute about a HIPAA violation arising out of a lost laptop by a medical company, and it was not clear whether fines and penalties were covered or not. That wouldn't happen today. I think most insurers have fairly well-written policies that have been tested, looked at by lawyers. And as I look at the disputes I've done over the last seven years, many of them, where there was a dispute about whether things were covered, are now covered. They're either in the base form or they're covered by endorsement, whether it's you know business email compromise or payment card data, whatever you think of. And so the, the policies are broader and I don't have as many sort of is it covered or not uh, in total kinds of disputes? What I have are bits and pieces. Um, so most of the claim has been covered and paid. And then there's an issue about a sublimit for, for example, um, credit monitoring. How much will we pay a class for credit monitoring? Is it a year? Is it two years? Is it three years? There's an interpretive question there. So mm -hmm. I see sublimits quite a lot. I see just valuation of business interruption and different interpretations from an accounting perspective of what that looks like. I do see a little bit about um, different kinds of exclusions within the cyber policy. I have not yet seen a war exclusion. Um, and I do think the war exclusions on the cyber policies are much more focused than the war exclusions across other lines of business. But um, but yeah, I see, I see quite a variety and none of them seem to be the same. Mm. And, and the, the, the cases that make it uh, to you, why, why did they make it to you? What makes them ripe for ADR or, or good for ADR rather than court? So most of the cyber policies have some sort of ADR clause requiring either arbitration or mediation. And usually if there's a choice for the policyholder, the policyholder will choose mediation. Um, although sometimes the parties decide to mediate on their own and they're not even trying to trigger that clause. And I think both sides realize it's good to try and resolve these outside of court without any further publicity, without a written record, without, you know, sort of law 360 notifications. Um, and I think they're also looking for someone who knows a little bit about the area and can provide at least a little bit of substantive feedback or at least tough questions about the positions that are being taken so that each side knows that they're sort of thoroughly tested by the, by the ADR process. Mm. And Bruce, you've mediated disputes involving cyber breach class actions. Uh, what, what dynamics drive those cases into mediation? <clears throat> dynamics uh, generally are those that would be applicable to most class actions, and that is the cost of the litigation from the defense side and the desire to get an early settlement from the plaintiff's lawyer's side of the case. The uh, number of cyber class actions that I've been seeing has increased uh, in a large way over the course of the last few years to a point where uh, I'm seeing cyber uh, class action arising out of uh, a data breach probably once a week. Mm. Um, and these are class actions that generally arise out of uh, breach and ransomware situation in which uh, the threat uh, actor is uh, asked uh, holding a business's system in return for a ransom payment. 
And during the course of that, of course, there's a question about what is the threat actor seeing or having access to in terms of the business and what kind of data or information, consumer or health-related data, are they potentially having access to? Uh, and those cases, uh, there are just so many data breaches. And uh, I think, as uh, Kirsten pointed out, the growth in the size of the costs of uh, this to the uh, to the world economy is just e enormous. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> in terms of the insurance side of the of the third party uh, cases, there generally the the couple of issues that I see uh, really don't relate to the insurance coverage uh, of, uh, so much as they relate to the limits of the cyber policy. Um, since cyber policies cover uh, both third-party liability, uh, like these class actions, as well as first-party um, uh, coverages in terms of restoring uh, either paying a ransom payment and or restoring the system uh, to its uh, uh, full capacity so that the business can move on. Uh, a lot of money gets spent uh, before the third-party case is even brought. Okay. Uh, the note, and there's a significant notice requirement to the business that's been breached in terms of notifying consumers or customers or employees that their information has been accessed. So when it gets time for the third party class action to be settled, there often is a issue relating to the remaining policy limits. Mm -hmm. Is there enough to settle the third party case? Okay. Uh, the other uh, issue is that cyber insurers uh, have a lot of experience uh, in settling these cases. And so they kind of know the market for these settlements and uh, they're very precedent conscious in mm -hmm. terms of what they'll pay in one case versus another. And they are not going to overpay only to be here from the same plaintiff's lawyers in another case that they were able to get X dollars in that case. Why won't they pay the same here? So those are the couple of things that come out of from the insurance side, at least with respect to the data breach cases. Mm -hmm. You said in, uh, they're very precedent um, oriented. What are the other biggest challenges in resolving these disputes when they when they get to you uh, that you find? Well, the biggest legal challenge, generally speaking, is is a uh, standing issue whether the class representative has any damage. It's very uh, unusual to see a class representative in these cases that has actually been damaged or can tie or can tie whatever damage they've. Uh, they have to a specific cyber breach, uh, in part because there are so many cyber breaches. That's a legal hurdle. There are many other arguments with respect to whether a class is appropriate for class certification. But the, um, th those are the, 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 the legal issues that get presented. The practical side of it is uh, simply that the insured policyholder as well as the insurance company in many cases believe that they can defeat these cases based on the legal issues. But the cost of doing so is such that it drives them into a settlement context that will allow them to settle for essentially a cost of defense without having to uh, litigate uh, and, and basically exhaust the rest of the policy. Mm. Andrew, as, as we have uh, several folks have noticed, cybersecurity incidents are only going to grow. You spent time at AIG, so you know what in-house folks are facing. What can parties do to get ready? Well, I think there's there's a lot of people out there sort of dealing with playbooks for these kinds of situations. 
And I think the most important thing is knowing what your organization is capable of and isn't and figuring out where you have to find outside resources to handle the rest of it. Um, and, and I think that's a challenge for every organization, every company. After that, I think the most important thing is probably having your insurance people ready to go um, to get notice to your insurers, because a lot of the things that you might insource, outsource in terms of responding to a cybersecurity incident are things that insurers, cyber insurers provide under their policies, crisis response, forensics, incident response. All of these things are things you can contract for with your cybersecurity policy. And then the other piece of that is just making sure your contractual arrangements with all of your vendors and suppliers and contractual partners are up to date in terms of how you deal with cybersecurity incidents. So you know what you're doing and, and how you're going to go about doing it and, and who's responsible. Hey Bruce, would you add anything to that? I would say this, that in those cases where the either the existence of cyber insurance is in question or the balance of limits is, uh, uh, policy limits are limited, uh, that it is important to share financial data of the business itself with the plaintiff's counsel um, if the ability to pay is going to be a, uh, a question in the mediation. Uh, that This comment would apply to all mediations. Wherever the ability to pay comes into play, I think the defendant insured has to be prepared to uh, discuss their financial condition within mediation confidentiality uh, in order to persuade plaintiff's counsel to be more realistic about what uh, uh, what they can obtain in a settlement. And Joni, Kirsten, I want to uh, allow you to have uh, a final word about anything that you're looking forward to. Uh, what, what should we all be looking out for? Uh, Joan, I'll, I'll start with you. Thanks. Yeah, I think that uh, we are going to see more of these uh, issues come up for some kind of uh, review and resolution. On the, on the points that were just made by Andrew and Bruce, I agree that there are challenges with respect to settling these cases. But I, I would also add, you know, in addition to, you know, what kind of um, policy limits or sort of financial uh, resources are available, there's also a, a great amount of creativity being brought to trying to resolve these cases. Not, for example, all data is the same. <clears throat> So with some large data breaches, you may have subsets of people that have more or less sensitive data. And some of the better settlements, I think, that are being approved by the courts and are accepted by the plaintiff attorneys really do recognize that. And, and uh, that's something that's starting to evolve more over time, I think, than we saw initially. And, um, and those are things I think where we can all work together to try to create settlements that, you know, satisfy all the requirements, but also, you know, accept and acknowledge the fact that, you know, as, as Bruce says, there are very few people that ever can establish that they've been harmed, but certainly the risk of harm differs depending on the type of data. So that's something that, you know, we're very focused on and working with, you know, neutrals and, and other attorneys on trying to continue to develop the best possible strategies to get to the best possible resolutions. Thank you. And Kirsten? Yes. So so I think I would just um, kind of caution uh, that the, you know, prevention is better than cure for for all of this. Uh, So I I would encourage from a policyholder perspective, um, insureds to really, you know, focus on when they're purchasing cyber insurance policies, that they're really carefully reviewing the policy language, prefer 
preferably with the help of their broker or outside counsel, and, and they're looking at the language carefully. They're comparing, for example, war exclusions. They're comparing other forms of exclusions and conditions, and um, that they can be aware that there, there may be room to negotiate more favorable terms and find alternative insurance products that might have more favorable language in the market. All right, Andrew, Joan, Kirsten, Bruce, thank you so much. It's uh, been, uh, been a great conversation. You've been listening to a podcast from JAMS, the world's largest private alternative dispute resolution provider. Our guests have been Andrew Naldona and Bruce Friedman of JAMS, Joan D'Ambrosio of Etheria Law, and Kirsten Jackson of Latham & Watkins. For more information about JAMS, please visit www.jamsadr.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from JAMS. <laughs>